And also another thing that didn't come up in the actual interview that you might have read or been able to hear is that when I gave John the copy of Grapefruit to autograph, he said, wow, this is just incredible. And I said, well, well, great. When I write my book, I'll autograph it and send it to you. And he said, oh, that's so exciting because that's one of my favorite things. I I always ask for people to autograph their books and things when they give them to me. And I said, well, yeah, then when I do, you're going to get it. And although it was now over 40 years ago, it was my inspiration to write the book that I've written and will be published and released next year. One, two, three, one, two, three. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. I'd like to welcome a very special guest, Lori Kay. Lori is a former newscaster at RKO Networks. She's interviewed everyone in the music industry, from David Bowie to Paul McCartney. Lori was also part of the team that interviewed John Lennon and Yoko Ono in their Dakota apartment on December 8th, 1980, just hours before John was assassinated. Lori began her career in radio at KFRC San Francisco. She wrote and co-produced numerous radio rock specials for RKO, including RKO Presents the Beatles. Her new book, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview, is coming out next year. In her book, she talks about her journey from being an internet RKO to being able to interview some of the biggest rock stars that ever existed and goes into depth about her moments with John Lennon on December 8th, 1980. In fact, after the interview with John and Yoko, Lori told John she was planning on writing a book, and when she eventually publishes it, she was going to autograph it and give it to John, to which John was very excited to hear. That was Lori's inspiration to finally publish this book. So let's get right into the interview. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad to have you on. I'm excited to talk about your new book and your interview with John Lennon. But why don't we start by you telling us how you first heard the Beatles? Well, take it all the way back to when I was a little kid, more than a toddler, but definitely uh, uh, just barely into school. And I was pretty much addicted to transistor radios and the little earplugs. And I would see the older kids running around on the street with them and dancing around as they were walking. And so I immediately asked that I could have one too. And when I finally got one, I lived with it, literally. I mean, I had those earplugs all night in my bed and, and you know, just listened to the radio. So when the Beatles were finally played on the radio, 
it was like, wow, this is so cool. This is so different than than surf music from the Beach Boys, you know, which had been playing pretty much in uh, in Southern California up to that point, uh, along with a lot of other pop. But yeah, the Beatles were were definitely something new and wonderful for me. And what were your thoughts when you first heard the Beatles? And why did their music stand out over other music at that time? Well, for one thing, I need to explain that I grew up um, in a very dysfunctional and abusive family. And so when I heard a song like, I want to hold your hand um, about being touched, um, that was something that I hadn't really experienced in my family life. So it was something that when I heard that song, it just, it spoke out to me. That's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be touched. I wanted my hand to be held. Um, it just, it made me feel happy inside just to hear those lyrics and to hear the great musicians. And when I finally saw them, I pretty much had a crush on every single one of the four of them. So it, there was there was nothing wrong with any of it. As a kid, not only was it incredibly exciting hearing the Beatles on the radio, on all the AM stations on my transistor radio, but it was also amazing seeing them on Ed Sullivan. I still, to this day, watch the Ed Sullivan appearances every few weeks. They're amazing. And uh, and so inspiring. And as well, what was really important to me was seeing A Hard Day's Night and then Help. I loved those movies. And my friends and I would sit there in the theater for as many different shows as we could. We wouldn't leave after one show ended. We would sit there and wait and watch it again and sit there and wait and watch it again as often as we could. So um it was it was a very big part of my early life. Another major part of my book is all of the concerts I was lucky enough to get to go see, uh, even though I wasn't technically allowed to by my family. I had to escape my apartment uh, by jumping off the balcony to go to shows uh, at the Forum or Hollywood Bowl or Troubadour with, with friends of mine, things like that. But the one show I actually was allowed to go see when I was a kid was the Beatles at Dodger Stadium because it was a birthday party that a friend of mine had uh, and took several uh, of her friends to Dodger Stadium, uh, her, her mother did. So it was very exciting. I was incredibly thrilled, even though I have to admit, all I remember is hearing fans screaming and yelling rather than hearing the actual music. I could barely see the Beatles because we were way up at the top. You know, tickets were like three to six dollars, I think, uh, back in the day. And there were, what, 40 to 45,000 people there. So it was very noisy, but it was still an amazing experience that I, that I live with to this day. Wow. And at which point in your life did you decide to pursue this career? And did the Beatles have an influence on that decision? The Beatles and just about every other band and artist that I heard up until till the time I was probably in high school. And as I say in my book, um, what I needed was something to, to really just 
push me into a career and give me approval and and um, support, which I wasn't getting from my family, uh, my mother or my stepfather. And so what I did was coincidentally um, end up listening to radio all through my young adult life and um, enter into a lot of radio call-in contests, radio station contests. And one of the major things I won, because I won a lot, was tickets to the Rolling Stones, um, Nicaragua benefit, which was back in early, uh, very early 73. And when I won the tickets and went to the station to go pick them up, instead of just taking them from the receptionist, I was asked to come on the air with the major um, DJ there, who was B. Mitchell Reed, who had also been a big guy on AM radio. And the minute I started talking, when he asked me my name and, and age and all of that, the first thing he said was, you have a great voice, Laura, you should be on the radio. And that said it to me. That, that, you know, it was, there were a lot of directions I needed to go from there, but that was basically what turned me on to it. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That it sounds like it was meant to be. Now, I know you go into a lot of detail about this in your book, but can you briefly walk us through how you went from that moment to years later, um, interviewing George Harrison, Paul McCartney and John Lennon? Well, there was, there was a lot in between that. Um, including um, uh, several different times at at different colleges. And uh, I ran away to become an expatriate in Bali to study Balinese dance and then came back. And when I was finally uh, at the um, uh, University of California, Berkeley, um, they had already closed down their undergraduate journalism department. So uh, or journalism school, I should say. And so I went through the department and started to take news writing classes. And the first one I took, um, my teacher, who was also a, a news writer, said to me, why are you taking this class? You already know how to write. Just go get an internship. You'll get a job. And you know what? He was absolutely right. That's what I did. And I ended up getting a job, not at a major newspaper, like I originally thought I might want, like the New York Times, but um, at the number one AM station in the country, pretty much at the time, according to Billboard magazine, which is KFRC AM in San Francisco. They were looking for newsroom interns for the very first time. I was the very first one. Uh, And uh, one other thing that I did want to mention is Just after I was an intern at KFRC, I was amazingly hired to be a news editor, the news editor for this station. And not only did I want to do news work in the newsroom, but Dave Sholin, who was the music director at the time, um, I wanted to work with him on, on music things and I let him know. And so all of the little specials that I was doing, I used music in popular music and older music as well and he apparently was impressed by that and the way I wrote them and also wrote uh stories for the newscasters so he was asking me before I could even realize it to write what RKO was about to release called RKO presents the Beatles which was about to become the longest Beatles special ever released in the United States. 
It was a 14-hour Beatles special that got expanded to 17 hours, and I wrote and co-produced it and did a number of amazing interviews for it um, with people um, that had surrounded the Beatles, um, including DJs who um, played a part and called themselves the fifth Beatle or whatever. And, um, and then by the time we uh, expanded it to 17 hours a couple of years later, I had interviewed um, George Martin and um, George Harrison and Paul McCartney and John Lennon and uh, a number of other people related to them in their early band days. And so it was like, my career was built around the Fab Four. When you were interviewing John, Paul, George, and George Martin, did you notice any commonality between any of them? George, Paul, John, and George Martin all had something similar in that they really did like working with each other um, in terms of on stage and in the studio as the band started out early. And George Martin, even though he admitted that when he first heard the tape that Brian Epstein gave him to listen to, although he was somewhat attracted to it, he wasn't about to say, yes, I'm going to produce that band until he actually met with them and worked with them in the studio for one day, which he did. And at that point, he told me, I knew. I knew it was ready to go. And it was the same thing with John meeting up with Paul. As he said, he heard Paul at, at it was John's show for the Quarrymen, where Paul showed up and ended up being backstage playing another old rock and roll song that was a favorite of, of John's. And John said, I pretty much immediately asked him, does he want to join the group? And the next day he did. And so that's the type of thing that seemed to be in common with all of them. There were there were things about each other that they all were interested and into that made what they did and how they worked together great until, of course, they ended up breaking up. You were part of a team that interviewed John Lennon and Yoko Ono in their Dakota apartment on the morning of December 8th, 1980. What do you remember most about that interview? I remember thinking that I was going to wake up at any time and this was going to be a dream that I was having, a number nine dream, that I was not going to actually be sitting there on a love seat with John Lennon. That was just outrageous to me. I just, I couldn't believe it. And and this is even though I had interviewed Paul, Paul and Linda McCartney the year before in London with our RKO team. Uh, and still, it was just, John Lennon was just, a completely different matter. You know, it was, it was not just that he was my number one Beatle by that time, but that he had been gone from the music industry pretty much for nearly five years. And so the fact that I was going to get to sit next to him and talk to him about music and with Yoko Ono, of course, also, and the the other members of our RKO team, it was just, it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. Can you paint a picture of you walking into that interview? What was everything like that day? That's the introductory chapter of my book, Imagine. And I describe walking down the sidewalk into the Dakota feeling like I was 
up in the air, like I was walking on a cloud. I couldn't believe where I was going and who I was about to meet up with. It was very, very exciting. And walking in the room itself was breathtaking. It was, there were so many exciting things, everything from seeing the amazing grand piano that was in the office that Yoko pretty much used on her own to um, the white shag carpeting that I wanted to be barefoot and stand on and just so many other things. It was just, it was awe-inspiring. How would you describe the energy that was in the room the day of the interview? I, I guess you would say that the energy in the room that day of the interview was warmth. It was just, it was beautiful in a way because I was so concerned that John being so intelligent and intellectual and Yoko being such a conceptual artist that I would be coming across along with the the other uh, interviewer, Dave Sholin from, uh, from KFRC, that I would be coming across as somebody who didn't know what I was talking about compared to John, compared to Yoko. And that was absolutely the opposite. I, I came off feeling from him so validated, more so than I'd ever felt in my life. It was just amazing when I said something that he completely agreed with. Not only did he just have this look of of love and shock on his face and say love, you know, called me love, John Lennon calling me love. That was outrageous, you know, that um, that I was incredibly excited. And And when he would do things like, put his finger in the middle of his glasses like like you would see him do all the time in in uh in various other other shows and things and and push his glasses down and look at me with his eyes like you're saying something amazing that's absolutely right you know i was just i was in awe not not just of myself but i was in awe of john lennon recognizing this in me and validating and treating me like I was somebody intelligent who knew what to ask him. It was amazing. The interview starts off with an energetic burst from John. He's apologizing he's a bit late, but he's also coming in with quick jokes and a welcoming demeanor. Throughout the interview, he seems so content, happy, and optimistic. Is that your take of how he was feeling in 1980? Um, yes, he was definitely happy and loving and energetic, and he just... He wanted to talk about everything, including child rearing, which is not something you would ever have expected John Lennon to talk about, considering that, you know, self-admittedly, he was barely a father to his first son, Julian. Um, and that's because the Beatles were touring, the Beatles were recording, the Beatles were doing whatever that they had to do. And he did not have time or the inclination to sit at home and be a father. And that changed of course with the birth of Sean so it was um it was exciting to hear about that and then at one point because I'm a person who doesn't have children and that's not my number one attraction to to people um I said are you ready to talk about music now how did you go about starting to make music again and he got so excited and said so many funny things you know like Yes, absolutely. It was like I had a diarrhea of creativity, you know, and, and it was it was wonderful to hear that. 
And during this interview, I noticed that John brings up Paul quite a few times. Did you get a vibe that there might have been a Beatles reunion in the future? Well, I got the vibe that they were definitely still in contact. Um, So that was encouraging. And that led me to think that eventually there might be something like that. But in terms of live performances coming up, um, the definite impression that was given was that if John was going to go on tour, he would be going on tour with Yoko and his, as he called them, expensive session musicians from Double Fantasy and the next uh, album uh, that they had already uh, uh, completed, basically. So even though I would have loved to have heard that he was thinking, wow, a Beatles reunion would be amazing, I wasn't surprised that he didn't say that was something that he was dying to do. And also the year before, when I'd interviewed Paul and Linda in their latest uh, lineup of Wings, um, Paul had said that just, uh, I believe it was a month before, um, there had been the closest thing ever to a Beatles reunion, which took place at the wedding ceremony of um, Eric Clapton, um, when there were a number of musicians, including Paul, George, and Ringo, John was not there, and they did all get up and make music, but he said, thank goodness it wasn't recorded. He hoped to God that it hadn't been taped or or filmed or anything, because it just didn't sound that good. I mean, there hadn't been rehearsal. It had been years and years. So I was pretty much assuming by the time we talked to John that it would take a lot to have any kind of Beatles reunion. And I don't mean just a lot of money, because of course they'd been offered millions to do something like that, but it it would have taken a lot of times and rehearsal. So that was different. At one point during the interview, John says that the title of his new album, Double Fantasy, made sense to him because it reminded him of the way that he and Yoko lived their life. Did it seem like John and Yoko were operating as one person during this interview and in life in 1980? Well, I would like to say that Yoko was being interviewed, and that was per John. And not only that, but the same with when he was taking photos for Rolling Stone the morning of that interview. Um, He also insisted that Yoko be part of it, not just him, because it was their album, and it was the two of them on the cover. So he wanted them to both speak out. And the idea was that Double Fantasy was literally about the new relationship between men and women going into the 80s. And both he and Yoko had very definite and positive things to say about the way men and women would be working on their relationship and making it so much better than it had been, say, in the 60s and the 70s. And what subjects of conversation do you feel that John and Yoko were most passionate about during that interview? Well, I have to say right off the bat that one thing we were told leading up to the interview was that we weren't going to bring up the Beatles and we weren't even going to bring up anything about John's past. He wanted to start with double fantasy and take it from there. But thank goodness John himself brought up the past. John himself brought up the Beatles, mentioned Paul, George, Ringo, you name it, you know. So that was pretty exciting. And they were very passionate about 
being a major influence on the lifestyles and relationships of men and women going forward into the 80s. And although John said, you know, he definitely wanted to be um, popular among younger listeners, he the album that he and Yoko had just done was really directed towards people his own age, 30s and 40s, um, and baby boomers. And so that's who he wanted to let know that there were ways to resurrect these relationships that they'd been having and have better times, you know, between men and women. And that was especially something that he was able to talk about because he'd been through the separation and lost weekend, you know, almost divorcing from Yoko as well. So it was wonderful to hear them talk about how great it was to be back together and to hear John tell how that was the worst period in his life being separated from Yoko. It was it was heartbreaking to to watch his face even as he talked about that. Was there anything notable that happened after the mics were turned off and it was officially off the air? Well, at the end of the interview, when I showed John and Yoko had already seen it, but I showed John the copy of Yoko's book, Grapefruit, that I had brought with me. And it was a vintage copy. It was a 1970 version of her 1964 um art and poetry book. And John was so excited. And he said, Oh, my God, I wrote the introduction to that book. And it said so right on the cover underneath the beautiful picture of Yoko. And and Yoko, of course, joined in saying, Yes. And shortly after, I wrote the introduction to John's book when it was re-released. And that was very exciting. And, and John was so thrilled to see the book, saying that he hadn't seen a copy of it. Neither of them had in years. And he wanted to autograph it. You know, he wanted to autograph Yoko's book for me and asked me basically, would that be okay? And I said, well, yes, of course. I mean, not only because he'd written the inter- the introduction, but because he was John Lennon and he was married to Yoko Ono. And if anyone was going to understand that, you know, he would. And one of the other things that he brought up about, about grapefruit, which was amazing, was that that's been the inspiration for Imagine, which is, I believe, his best solo album ever. And because grapefruit had Yoko saying a number of times, imagine this and let's imagine that. And John said, even though that he didn't give her credit for writing the song, which he would have, and he was about to say something, and Yoko interrupted, chiming in and saying, yeah, but he dedicated the entire album to me. And of course, the song, Oh, Yoko, was on it, and you can't get much better than that. So that was my interpretation anyway. So uh, yeah, and and also another thing that, that didn't come up in the actual um interview that you might have read or been able to hear is that John said when I gave him uh, the copy of of Grapefruit to autograph, he said, wow, you know, this is amazing. And uh, I just, I'm just, this is, this is just incredible. And I said, well, well, great. When I write my book, 
I'll autograph it and send it to you. And he said, oh, that's so exciting because that's one of my favorite things. I I always ask for people to autograph their books and things when they give them to me. And I said, well, yeah, then when I do, you're, you're going to get it. And And that was my inspiration. Although it was now over 40 years ago, it was my inspiration to write the book that that I've written and will be published uh, and released next year. Wow, that's so beautiful. It'll finally be published. And when you walked out of that interview, what kind of work were you expecting to see from John in the year 1981? Well, I was pretty sure that he'd be doing the tour um, eventually with uh, with Yoko and the session musicians. So I was really excited. And I was thinking to myself, whatever, wherever I'm working at the time, I will quit so I can go to every single show on the tour. I will follow them on tour. I will be there every minute. And um, that was something I was just determined to do. And John had also said that before they did go on tour, he was planning to do more music, make more albums, so that when they went on tour, Double Fantasy would be the original album on it. And um, and that was very exciting for me because I really love Double Fantasy. It said so much to me about their relationship. And yes, it was different from many other things, but it also concentrated on John's love of rock and roll and his and Yoko's ability to correspond with each other. John said, you know, told the whole story of making the album that that he sang something to her and then maybe a half hour to two hours later, she would call and sing something back to him and it would keep going back and forth. And that's how all the songs came through. Now, if you could go back to the day of that interview, to be in the shoes of your younger self, what's one more question that you would have liked to ask John? If I went back, the one question that I would definitely want to ask is, hard to describe, (laughs) because what it would have been was I would have been absolutely going against what the record company had told us not to do, which was talk about the Beatles, talk about John's past. That's what I would have wanted to know, is I wanted to would have wanted to ask about John's upbringing, even though I had read about it, and I knew that he also had somewhat of a dysfunctional family and was pretty much abandoned by his mother and sent to live with his aunt and never met his father for years and years. And that was very similar to my upbringing. I had never met my father. He left my mother when she was still pregnant. So I probably would have wanted to ask John all about how that affected him and how that became important in inspiring him and into his creativity and turning him into an amazing musician. And did you feel connected with John because you both shared a similar experience? I felt connected with both John and Yoko on so many different levels. I felt like I had made two really great friends and not just people that I was going to see those hours on that day, but that I would continue being friends with. Because before the interview was over, we made plans to all go meet for dinner when they were going to be in San Francisco in the next couple of weeks. 
So even though I was living in Los Angeles at the time, I was perfectly ready to drive on up or to catch a plane and fly up to have dinner, along with Dave Sholin and Ron Hummel, who were also uh, RKO. Ron Hummel was our um, engineer uh, uh, producer, and Dave, uh, the RKO exec and KFRC um, music director. So I was sure that I had made lifelong friends. It was amazing. Lori, you've interviewed so many other artists as well, and you write about all of this in your new book. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book that's coming out next year? Well, the title of the book is Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. And that's pretty much a definition of my entire life since December 8th, 1980. Although I was a rock and roll name dropper before then, too, because I had the joy and the excitement of interviewing everyone from my idols like Mick Jagger, David Bowie, even David Cassidy from the Partridge family. I mean, you know, all all the people that I'd, I'd grown up listening to, it was so very exciting. And one thing that I always wanted to do was be able to remember all of these. So even though, unfortunately, I didn't take a lot of pictures with these artists, except for John and Paul and, you know, several others, um, I did keep all of the tapes of the interviews and most of them were reel to reel. So not having reel to reel machines all over the the world anymore is kind of difficult. They've had to be uh, uh, transferred to, um, to cassettes and digital. Um, but, um, but I still get to hear them every once in a while. And, and sometimes I'll, I'll actually have a dream and, and remember, Oh, that's what Paul Kantner from Jefferson airplane and starship said to me, that's right. You know, and it's just those kind of things still play such a big part in my life. Wow. And, and what kind of information can people expect to learn when they read your book? Well, they can expect to find out about what happened during the interviews and what, what the artists themselves said, um, including Ramones, who talked about having eaten lunch at a restaurant in San Francisco that I had, they told me beforehand they were going to, I would have said, no, it's terrible. Don't go there. The food is full of grease. And so poor Didi was just feeling terrible towards the end of the interview. So there's all those kind of funny little stories that take place during the interviews. Plus there's the story of my life, my youth, um, as I mentioned, non-supportive family, um, abusive and and that's both verbally and to some point physically uh, dysfunctional family upbringing and how I got over that how I found my way around that and got to do exactly what I wanted which was be a part of the music industry even though I had absolutely no connections and no um, encouragement from anybody I was related to to do something like that. Wow. It's such an incredible story. And congratulations again on all of your accomplishments and your book's release. And Lori, when and where can people buy this book? Well, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper will be out next year. And 
as usually happens to all the interviews I do regarding my last interview with John, like the CNN interviews, the the uh, ABC 2020 interviews, Sirius XM, um, all, all the other interviews I've done, um, they tend to air um, around either John Lennon's birthday, October 9th, or the anniversary of the interview and of his tragic passing, which was December 8th. So the book will be released between that that time period. However, um, it is being uh, advanced uh, listed. So if anybody listening would like to know more about it and possibly even pre-order, they can do that um, not just on Amazon, but on my publisher's website, which is FayettevilleMafiaPress.com. Lori, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us about your amazing life and that insightful interview with John from 42 years ago. I'm looking forward to reading more about it in your book. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you too, and I can't wait to hear what you think. What I will say about my book is it's not like the average memoir. It's not, it doesn't read like somebody's diary or here's what happened today, here's what happened yesterday, et cetera, et cetera. It's full of flashbacks and flash forwards and stories that I bring up um, all throughout my life, even when I'm talking about growing up as a kid. So it's um, it's a very different kind of book, and it's my unique voice and unique stories to tell. The Ball! Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm Jack Lawless, the creator of this show and Beatles Earth. If you liked the episode, be sure to follow this podcast so you can listen to us every week. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Beatles Earth. Thank you to Lori for coming on the podcast. You can pre-order her book, Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, online now. The link to that will be in the podcast description, as well as a YouTube link to her interview with John and Yoko. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.